This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 8, Episode 38. This is Writing Excuses, Out of Excuses Retreat Q&A number 2. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're surrounded by people. Very, very smart people who yes. are asking Great difficult questions. Que- yeah, difficult yes. questions that we haven't been asked before. All right, so you're let's in try to get to these, and let's try to be quick about it. We'll be fast. All right. How have our opinions on changed on self-publishing since last year? Drastically. Okay. How? Come on. Um, well, two years ago, I put out a book, uh, just self-published myself, and did not see any real success with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my understanding of the self-publishing market has changed since then. I think it, I was trying to do the wrong size. I think I was trying to do the wrong book. Um, I have a new plan to do something different, but that will be a surprise. Okay. I have arrived at a pithy summary of the problem of self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, what you are doing is trading the need for getting past a gatekeeper for the need to engage signal boosters. I mean, there's still all kinds of work that you need to do, but in order to make money, in order to get your work seen, um, you need people to be talking about it. And that, it's it's a different kind of problem, right. uh, but it still involves being able to sell your book to a small group of influential people. Um, in the last year, I've come to see self-publishing less as, demi- as needing the platform, in that originally the big successes I saw were all platform writers, but then um, I talked to a lot of self-pub people, um, and I investigated what they're doing, and they indicated to me, and I saw the data that said that the majority of people that are making a living at self-publishing are not platform writers. They are writers who are writing a lot, lot of material that is, uh, that is very short. Um, and they are releasing six or seven books a year, and these are the people who are making forty or fifty thousand um, dollars instead of the big millionaires that we see. And they're kind of the the living, working authors of the self pub field. And so I've come to see them as more what's driving it. Even though the big bestsellers who have the big platforms are the ones that uh, that are that our eyes gravitate toward first. I still am in the camp of, I think self-publishing is a wonderful way to go for people, but I am too lazy to do all of the work. All right. <laughs> what did you find difficult early on in your career, and how did you identify it as a problem? I found it difficult to write a good story reliably. Mm. That um, reliability is tougher than you. Yes. Yeah, than people assume. Yes, because what was happening to me was that I would write a story that was good, but I would write it by accident. And I'd write a lot of stories that had a good beginning and a good ending, and they were not the same story, even though they had the same characters. So I went to a writing workshop, and I took classes, and I read a lot. And I spent a year where writing was really hard because I was having to relearn how to do it. But at the end of that, I came up with being able to do it repeatedly. Uh, early on, my biggest difficulty, and I've mentioned this before, was revision. And it was less the, um, the revision process itself and more the fact that I didn't want to revise anything. I just was so eager about the next project that I'd finish something and move on. And um, because of that, I didn't get practice revising. And I also don't like revising nearly as much. And so early on, my books were all decent, 
none of them were fantastic. And they got to better levels of good without getting great until I, and how did I learn that this was the case? I fell into it accidentally um, by things getting rejected and me saying, well, I should do another draft of this. I'll put it through the writing group and then me doing that draft and then sending it out to editors and getting a better response and getting it back and taking some of the things editors said and doing another draft and saying, wow, this book actually got better. Revision does something and sending it out and getting an even better response until it's sold. We call um, this closing the feedback loop. Yeah. Um, you built a feedback loop and then you closed it and were able to feed back and begin the process of, of improving. Howard? Mm -hmm. um, exhaustion and burnout because I was working two jobs and putting in 90 hours a week between IT and the comic. Um, the comic, I, was, I didn't have the cycles to work on it as hard as I needed to to really become awesome, which is what I wanted to be. Uh, and I did not have the cycles or the passion to pour into my IT yeah. middle management career to become awesome at that. Uh, I was, I was, those were four really, really rough years, and I'm glad to not be doing that anymore. Damn. My early problem that I had to overcome more than anything else, it was trying to find the balance between sellability, marketability, and what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, Every idea that I come up with for a book is completely different than the other one before it. And my editor and my agent, we've all talked about this. Brandon and I have talked about this. The overlap between the audience for the serial killer books at Hollow City is there, but it's not as big as it could be. And then the overlap between that audience and partials is even smaller. Um, and eventually I just had to embrace the fact that I would rather write what I want to write than just write the same book over and over again, even though it would probably sell better. Okay, the second half of this question is, what do you now find hardest, and how did you identify it? I will start. Um, just uh, the hardest thing for me now that I never thought would be so hard is finding time to write. Um, nobody warned me about how much other stuff there was involved in being a writer. And even through the middle years of being a, a mid-lister, when I'm like, wow, I just don't have as much time to write as I'd want, I didn't understand how bad it could get. Um, where there are plenty of months this year where I've been home with my family for a week. Um, I was home a week in May, for instance, and in April I was home for like two weeks, and March I was home, and fe uh, February I was not, and January I was home for a week, and finding time to actually get something done when everybody wants you at your conve their convention, and every publisher wants you at every convention and wants you on a tour, um, it's overwhelming, um, and I'm not sure how to balance it yet. I'm still learning. I'm just going to ditto that. I left home the... Uh last week of May and I will not get back mm -hmm. until July 8th. Yeah. All right, what's hardest for you guys now? Well, it's nothing that humble braggy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I found humility challenging and then I realized I had it easy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a really great answer to this one. I'm How still... do I eat all of these sausages? <laughs> How do I eat chocolate? <laughs> There's just too much They're of just it. too much. Now it's so difficult for you to get to anything because you live in Germany. I know. That's <laughs> the, the hardest part of my career is the Atlantic Ocean. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, we'll leave off of this one since there's no immediate response, and we'll go to our book of the week, which Mary is going to do for us. Yes, and I've already <laughs> forgotten what book I had suggested. It I'm has so, Twister in oh, the title. it's Trouble Twister. It's, yes, and I enjoyed it so much. Uh, this is a middle-grade book um, by Garth Nix and Sean Williams, and the premise is that um, these two twins discover that they have they have magic, but in this magic system, when you are young your magic can go wildly out of control. And so they have to kind of be kept away from certain members of the family because the interaction of magic is really bad. And then things go terribly wrong from there. What I particularly found interesting about this book, because you don't see it done very much anymore, is that it's a shared POV. And so you go back and forth between the two twins within a chapter without scene breaks. And it is done just seamlessly. You are never confused. It's, you know, we complain about head hopping, and this is an example of how to share a POV and how to do it really, really well. Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership and uh, listen to a copy of, listen to a copy, that sounds kind of weird. I'm not going to use that byline again. Um, <laughs> Trouble Twister by Garth Nix, and who was the other? Sean Williams. And Sean Williams. Both fantastic writers. Both fantastic writers. I've liked and, their books. Yes, and I should say that the narrator uh, does a wonderful job. That's uh, Marianne Margolves. She does a really nice job, I thought. All right. Uh, next question is, um, do you put Easter eggs in your work that only friends recognize? And I'm just going to answer that and say yes, yes, and then ask the question of, what's one of your favorites that you've put in? One of my favorites is from Fragments, the second partials book. <laughs> and uh, Mary, aside from my editor at Harper, was the first person to uh, notice this and contact me about it. 
the character Kira is traveling across the post-apocalyptic wasteland, you know, sheltering when possible in a shopping center or a whatever. And one night they, they spend the night in a library and she picks up a book because she's bored and she reads it and mentions very briefly that what it's about. And that's totally I am not a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> that my character from one series is reading the book about the character in the other series and comments on, yeah, you know, he thinks his life is hard. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I may have, uh, in, in an effort to make a friend happy, uh, killed a character in a very, very unpleasant way. Um, because Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and out that it was me, but I won't say. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, that was, and it was so very, very much fun to do. It was deeply Mary told Mary told me a story, and I anonymized it just enough, yeah. and uh, and made my friend happy. You know, that is my favorite way thing that I that you do too is you can put your friends in. In fact, uh, most <laughs> and oh. murder their enemies. Yes, yes. Murder their enemies. <laughs> I've actually done the murdering of enemies part, but I, that one I can't talk too much about right. because at the beginnings of the books it says this little thing about how all the people are fictitious. Um, and so, um, <laughs> all the people are fictitious as far as you can tell. Yes. Um, but, um, like in the way of Kings bridge four is populated by my friends, my writing group and my brothers-in-law, um, and things like that. All of the side characters that you run into are, are all of my, my good friends and people like that. All except actually for Dan, whom I put in the Mistborn books, um, instead and uh, who survives As a the very survives bloody massacre. Multiple bloody massacres. And then everybody else is like, well, where are we? And I'm like, all right, I'll put you in bridge for four, and I'll kill most I, of you. I actually have one more anecdote i got to <laughs> mm -hmm. throw out really quick. Um, I sold Serial Killer while I still had a job in an office, and uh, the people in the office were so excited uh, that w as I was writing Mr. Monster, they all asked me to be in it. And so virtually every victim of the murderer, <laughs> including all four of the women who are prisoners in the basement dungeon, are just the women from my office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're writing a book? Put me in it. Great. Get last. All right, Mary. Yeah, so, um, so in Shades of Milk and Honey... Uh, Beth Dunkirk is named after my friend Beth Wodzinski, who's the editor-in-chief at Shimmer Magazine. And we had a running joke about evil robot monkeys. Um, and then I wrote a story about evil robot monkeys. So in Shades of Milk and Honey, um, Mr. Dunkirk describes a letter that his sister Beth sent him. And he says, once she sent me a story she had written in which a clockmaker created an automaton of a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there it is. well, you there's there's a level you can go with your editors. Like for instance, my editor for the um, for Launtress, um, one of the characters says "colo" all the time. In his language, it's just it's one of these tags that a lot of languages have. That's a. Mm -hmm. Isn't that so? Korean says, "Isn't that so?" Uh, is, you know, a lot of he just uses it all the time. And when you actually speak one of these languages, people use them right and left. Drove my editor crazy that I used it so often. I'm like, this is realistic. This is what they do. He's like, no, it's driving me crazy. He cut out like half of them. So in the next book, I had one in a completely different world, completely different book. I had I added a, a couple of colos to the end of someone's dialogue just so my editor could scratch them out and curse at me. <laughs> 
That's brilliant. Okay. Yeah. The, the only other yeah. thing which I think most people have n- know about is that I put a Doctor Who cameo in all of the novels. Right. But that's just for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right. We have the question. Um, how much do questions, suggestions from fans shape your stories mixed with the idea of how much audience analysis do we do? So let's talk about these concepts. Audience analysis, do we ask um, our audience, do we analyze what people are reading, and how much do their comments influence us? It influences me hugely okay, uh, because of the way I write. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think this is, again, my theater background, that I, I need an audience when I'm writing. Okay. So the way I handle that is I have these alpha readers who are reading along as I go, and I mm-hmm. basically throw this open to my fans. Mm-hmm. And there have been times when I'm writing along, and someone will say, well, clearly something is, this thing is going to happen next. I'm like, oh, that was supposed to be a big surprise. So I take that out, and it does not happen next, because it is just way too predictable. And I, so I, I, will t- I have a couple of things that I've totally changed because of, of fan reaction while, during the writing process. Okay. Um, I will say I do a lot less, apparently, than you. Mm. Um, I will watch... Actually, reading reviews, fan reviews, is really hard. Because bad reviews, it's like you can get 100 good reviews, but the one bad review you focus on. And so when audience, things like that, I actually stay away from. And I, I will have my assistant keep an eye on it. And I have, he has instructions. Tell me if I'm doing something that everyone's pointing out that I need to know about. Um, otherwise, I'm going to do my thing. Um, and I'm, I don't pay a lot of attention to audience reaction, except for the fact, you know, when one book doesn't sell and another s- sells, I'll be like, all right, well, maybe that should influence what I do, but... Yeah, and I, I, should, I should say that for me, it, it is during the writing process, and uh-huh. these are people who are reading a draft. Right. In, in terms of what you're talking about, which is right. reviews... Yeah, I think he was asking about audience, um, like how much you pay attention to fans. And to oh, well, and I yeah. count I, because, yeah, yeah. because mm-hmm. I, I invite fans to participate in this. Right. Um, but in terms of of what people are saying, uh, you know, like reviews and things like that, um, I read four and five star reviews on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Um, I will read the one stars for kicks because they're hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't read the two stars or the three stars because you. Sometimes I'll read the three stars. Actually, I don't read the two stars because. My feeling is that those people are not my audience. Those are not the people I'm trying to attract. What I'm looking for are the people who are giving me a four-star review, but so they like the book. Mm-hmm. If there is a consistent thing that these people are complaining about... Ah, that's really clever. That's these so, are, mm-hmm. Because yeah. this is my core audience. These right. are people that like my books. And so those are the things that I look for. It, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The way I work, where the ending is neither scripted nor illustrated uh, while the beginning is available, locked in place for people to read. Um, uh, (laughs) I don't want to answer the question, but uh, it is specifically, but I will say this. um, Audience input uh, has less of an effect than the audience would think and more of an effect than I would like. Okay. (laughs) It's a nice summation of it. Um, I'll just say very quickly, with the Partials series uh, as a good example, there's kind of the the love triangle with Kira, Sam, and Marcus. And noticing the vast majority of people loving Sam and hating Marcus, I just took that as 
a challenge for me to make people love Marcus. Mm-hmm. So, so that was helpful. Yeah. The audience yeah. reaction was it very was helpful. It was very helpful because it made me see, oh, this love triangle is not working. You know, this is not a real choice because everybody obviously wants one half, right. not the other. So books two and three, I give Marcus so much more to do. I make him such a better character specifically so that, you know, to answer that. Now, you know, the question also was about audience analysis. And it makes me wonder if the, the person who asked this question is wondering, you know, do we go say, well, it looks like the audience wants this. Let's write a book for them or a story for them that will make them enjoy that. And that's a tough one, I think. I run because, demographics. I run demographics yeah. on my website in order to determine uh, what sorts of things I should be telling prospective advertisers. Okay. But that's me functioning as a publisher. That's right. not me functioning as a writer. It doesn't affect the story. I mean, I want to say, no, I don't do this. Um, yet, at the same time, I'm part of the community. And mm -hmm. I'm seeing what the community is liking yeah. and what they're excited about. And what the community is excited about, I find myself excited about. Um, and things like this, like, you know, the Rhythmatist. The Rhythmatist is basically steampunk. It's really gear punk, but it's steampunk. And it came out, back, I, I wrote it in, what, 2007? When a lot of this, the steampunk thing was really getting going, I'm like, this is exciting. These stories are exciting. People are writing. I want to do something like this. Is that audience analysis? Not so much as, hey, I'm part of this. If it were audience analysis, I would have released it in 2008, not in 2013, after the whole <laughs> steampunk thing had gotten kind of, um, I won't say overplayed, but it's been uh, much more saturated. It's, um, so, yes, I'm, I am, and no, I'm not at the same time. I think another aspect of it, uh, for me is watching the market, watching how the fans react and the big websites. What that tells me is which fans and websites I need to talk to when the next book comes out. Yeah. You know, Extreme Makeover, I know which people are going to be really interested in that, which outlets might, you know, want to talk about it, things like that. All right. We're out of time, but we have a fantastic question for next time that we didn't get to. Mm -hmm. So we will hold that for the next one. Um, you guys can be thinking about the question actually was where do you think that you guys that we where do we think that our careers would have gone if we'd never crossed paths I'm for writing pieces I'm going to suggest that as the writing prompt oh that's a good writing prompt you guys write <laughs> yes. it out we will answer it eventually uh, great we're making ourselves characters again <laughs> in our stories in put Dan in a ditch <laughs> the parallel dimension <laughs> where we never got together and did this and yep Oh, right. I would have joined Aww. the Fantastic Fortunately, <laughs> this did happen, and so you have writing excuses, but you have no more excuses. Go, now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.